This episode is brought to you by ShipBob, the global leader in e-commerce fulfillment with locations across North America, Europe, and the United Kingdom. ShipBob offers direct integration to merchants running on Shopify, Wix, BigCommerce, WooCommerce, Amazon, eBay, and Walmart. And they are the only 3PL that is Shopify Plus certified. Stay tuned for a special offer for Stairway to CEO listeners later in the show. This episode is brought to you by Nosto, the world's leading commerce experience platform. Nosto enables personalized shopping experiences without the need for IT resources or a long implementation process. Stay tuned for a special offer exclusively for Stairway to CEO listeners later in the show. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Stairway to CEO podcast brought to you by Future Commerce. I'm your host, Lee Green, and it's my mission to bring you a real, honest, and unfiltered interview with top business leaders from all walks of life. We'll talk about their climb to the top, their stumbles along the way, and the steps they took to get them to where they are. So tune in to get inspired, listen to some real talk, and enjoy the show. Welcome to episode 55 of the Stairway to CEO podcast. I'm your host, Lee Green, and today I spoke with Courtney Gold, the co-founder and former co-CEO of Smarty Pants Vitamins. Launched in September 2010 and acquired by Unilever in December 2020, Smarty Pants Vitamins is the leading purpose-led brand in supplements and has grown to encompass over 50 products, all scientifically formulated for a full spectrum of life stages and dietary habits. In this episode, Courtney shares with us her entrepreneurial journey from riding horses and working at a barn to working with technology startups in New York City to helping build the first fast pass for airport security at Clear to launching Smarty Pants Vitamins on Amazon with only one SKU after bootstrapping the business for 18 months with her husband. She talks with us about how she learned to get past no, how her leadership style has evolved, and how it feels to be stepping down as CEO of her own company to embark on her next chapter. Tune in to hear all of this and more. If you like what you hear, please don't forget to subscribe to the show and leave us an amazing review. We'd really appreciate it, and we hope you enjoy this episode. Courtney, thank you so much for being on the show today. I'm super excited in hearing your amazing entrepreneurial story and building Smarty Pants Vitamins. Thanks so much for your time. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. So let's start from the very beginning. Where are you from originally? Let's talk about you know your childhood, how you grew up. What was it like? Uh, I was very fortunate. I had a great childhood. I was uh, born in Texas, actually. I grew up in Dallas. And then uh, thankfully, my whole family moved to Austin. Uh, where they've been for quite some time. So uh, yeah, I grew up in Texas and uh, and then eventually moved to New York City where I got to spend my 20s, which was uh, a heck of a lot the of fun. Best. Yes. <laughs> the best time to be in New York City, yeah. Best time to be in New York City, amazing. Made the most amazing friends who are still uh, some of my closest friends in the world. And uh, for the last 10 years though, I had been living in Venice Beach, California with my family. Awesome. So just going back to childhood really quick, I'm curious, were you entrepreneurial as a kid? Were there any signs early on? Did you have the lemonade stand? What, you know, what was it like? 
you know, I, there were definitely early inclinations and attempts, but they were particularly ham fisted. So the story that my mom tells the most, which is super embarrassing, is that I went selling bread. I think I got the concept of selling things to my neighbors, but mm -hmm. it, but it wasn't about making stuff. So I would just take things from the house and then go out into the neighborhood and attempt to sell them. The most embarrassing being a loaf of bread, which I attempted to sell by the slice, which is particularly interesting. Yes, when I'm six years old. So like my grubby little six-year-old hands, like holding a single slice, offering to sell it for a dollar a piece, shockingly was not very successful. Did not make a lot of money with that venture. So yes, there was a lot, a lot of those, a lot of things like that, but yeah. No, no business that would have gotten funding. I'll just say that. Yeah. And so when you were like in high school or just maybe early college days, what were some of your first jobs that you had? Oh, uh, gosh, I had a lot of jobs. I rode horses competitively uh, mm. growing up. And so I worked at the barn to earn money to pay for lessons and stuff. So I wrapped horses, wrapped their legs and stuff. And I uh, worked for a catering business, actually, for quite a few years in high school. I did a ton of babysitting. So in college, I was the person who babysat all the professor's kids. And, nice. uh, so I did a lot of those. And then out, right my last year of college, I got the chance to uh, work for Mary Beth Rogers, who was the chief of staff for Ann Richards, who was the only woman governor in Texas and the only Democratic governor actually in Texas uh, for quite some time. And I got to work for her and uh, was offered a job after I graduated college. So that was my first job. It was incredibly fortunate. Ann Richards was an amazing woman and a pretty incredible role model to have for your very first sort of gig. That was that was pretty, uh, was pretty amazing. She was, she was very tough, but very funny and very disarming. You know, she, she was a Democratic governor in a heavily Republican state and a lot of uh, a lot of grace, and I think a lot to learn from her about how to navigate and build bridges and br bring people with differing ideas together in a room, you know, to get stuff done, uh, which she did. Did you want to be getting into politics or something at that time? Were you thinking that's the direction you wanted to go, or what did you want to do? Yeah, I mean, I think at the time I had an idea that that would be interesting. I was a poli sci major in college, right? Um, and like a lot of people, when you get into it. It's, I think what I learned is politics is all about compromise, or if you're good at it, it's mm -hmm. about compromise. I tend to not be very good at compromise. And it turns out that makes for a great entrepreneur. That's so true. Not, yeah, and not a great politician. So uh, although it was probably a, let's see, it was like a maybe a 10 to 15 year path between that first job and really my first entrepreneurial gig where I really was, you know, like part of the founding team or whatever. But, um, but yeah, I think the skill sets I had were not well matched for politics. That's for sure. That's hilarious. Was there a moment in this kind of maybe like compromising thing that you're talking about where you realize I'm going to compromise and just what does this mean for me now if I can't be compromising? Like when was that moment when you realized maybe I'm just an entrepreneur and not cut out for this? Well, the politics and entrepreneur are probably two different moments. The politics was just watching Governor Richards, who was such a badass but even she had to compromise, right? So I just remember watching her being talking, having a conversation with some of the Republican leadership that were visiting her. And and she just, she had to compromise to get things done. I just remember thinking, oh, well, that's a bummer. 
because she's so <laughs> strong and even she, right? The yeah. entrepreneur thing was something I actually kind of backed into, which is, you know, I I started out in sales. So I worked for, for uh, Governor Richards and then I, I got this opportunity to work for the board of directors for GM in this sort of crazy internship program they had. I did that for a couple of years and then um, right as that was coming to an end, they, if you interned for two years, they gave you a full ride to Harvard Business School, wow. which you know, I'm sure to my parents was like amazing, right? Yeah. And at that same time, I got offered a job at a startup making nothing. Um, when the internet startups were kind of coming, coming to really starting to pop up, right, in New York mm-hmm. City. And that just sounded like a lot more fun. So much to my parents, uh, I'm sure disappointment at the time, I walked away from the from the free ride at HBS and then instead to sleeping in a bunk bed in the office that we had because we were working like 20 hours a day. Um, that is a bold move. Were your parents like, what's wrong with you? Were they upset at you? Yes. All those things. They were like, you did it anyways. What what made you go against your parents? I think I just, I think boredom and like, and, and, things being the same every day is probably some deep-seated fear that I have. Do you know what I mean? (laughs) And so it didn't matter that it was a free ride or that it was fancy or like, I didn't care about any of that. What looked fun to me was being with a bunch of people who had no idea what they were doing. I was like, that looks like fun. Like whatever, I'm 22. You know what I mean? What are like school? I'm going to done with that, you know? Exactly. And and I was like, I can live on a box of rice. Like I don't need to make money, which is literally what I did. I joined a bunch of those record club, like um, CD club things where you get like 30 of them for a penny don't even exist anymore. And I joined it under like 10 different names and I would use that money, sell them back. And then like buy, you know, rice for the week or whatever. It was ridiculous. It was a total hustling lifestyle, New York City, you know. Were your parents waiting to be like, well, we told you so. Like if things got tough at that time, were they kind of just like, well, you could have just gone to Harvard. Did they ever kind of. They were like, they thought I was a little crazy. They, they supported me. They were more like, that's fine, but we're not going to pay for anything. Like Mm. you're on your own. And if you make this choice and it doesn't work out, you're going to have to figure that out. You know, you can you can come home and live for a little while, but we're not giving you money to stay in New York City. And that basically was the motivation I needed. Like I yeah. was like, oh, well, I am going to be successful because I am not going to live back home. That's <laughs> exactly. Right? Even though they're amazing people, I just you know whatever. When you're 22, you don't want to be doing that. So yeah. Uh, anyway, the 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 entrepreneur part though was really an accident. So I I ended up in kind of the internet kind of tech world. And while I was doing that, I had this fantasy that I should be something else. I was like, I want to be a singer, but I can't sing. I want to be a dancer, but I'm really not that good. Like I kept having this fantasy of all these other things I should be instead of a quote unquote business person. Yeah. Because in the words of my daughter, like who wants to be a business person? Do you know what I mean? Like, oh, that's the worst thing you could do. Like that's the least cool not very thing. popular, you know, where's the perks yeah, of yeah. that? That is not cool right? There's nothing cool about that. And so, but what I found out is that what I like is solving complex problems. And I like doing it with a group of people. And I liked all these things that ended up being what being an entrepreneur is. And so I kind of backed into it where I ended up with this job as the COO for a company uh, that you guys now know is clear, like you see it in all the airports, it's the fast pass for airport security. Yep. That was the first time I was no longer in tech. It was really making something for someone to use. I'm, I did that. And the very first email I got from a consumer, from a person saying, oh my God, I use, like this was amazing. Because you have to remember this happened right after 9-11. The whole security thing happened at the airport. And life for travelers became very different. And so I started getting these emails. And 
I was transformed by that moment of the human exchange of, because I'd been in tech for you know my career at that point for 10 years. I'd never made a thing that a person uses. I like sold air so other people could sell stuff. You know what I mean? Right. And I, I knew that wasn't resonating for me, but the first time I got an email from someone saying, I, I use this thing now and it changed my life. I was like, oh my God, you can make stuff for people and they will tell you what they think of it. Yeah. And it blew my mind. I mean, I realized that sounds so obvious, but like, I just didn't think of that as a career option. Mm -hmm. And that was it for me. And so then the next opportunity was kind of, again, emerged. It wasn't something I planned, but I ended up building Smarty Pants with my husband, this, the vitamin company that we just sold to Unilever. And that too was something where it started as something small, but that human exchange, right? I realized I loved that. And then the idea of doing it in the area of health, which is very important to me personally, it's important to my family, you know, and I know that it's a very foundational thing. Everybody, obviously it all starts with good health, right? And so um, that seems like a really amazing opportunity if you could be a part of someone's health journey and also be a part of that human exchange. Um, that sounded really cool and really hard. And I like really hard kind of, um, yeah. Yeah. So that's kind of how I ended up. So it's kind of, I kind of backed into being an entrepreneur, but then I recognized the pattern. I was like, oh, what I, what I love is solving problems um, mm-hmm. in a pretty challenging environment. And so that seems to be well-suited as opposed to politics. <laughs> right. And so as COO of Clear, what was your experience there? What were some of those big takeaways that you were able to take with you um, that could have helped you as a founder? I think the biggest one really is is getting past no. And that I did learn from uh, Steve Brill, who was the founder there, which was I watched him just speak truth to power in a way I had. And I also saw this with, with Governor Richards, like fearless in demanding that the truth be recognized in a conversation. So whether he got the outcome he wanted or not, he refused to allow someone to say, oh, well, it can't be this or it can't be that. And he would say, well, it is that way, right? Whatever the topic was, it's okay if you're going to not give me what I want, but you can't tell me that this isn't true. I know this is true. And his willingness to do that, I mean, I watched him have that conversation with the head of Department of Homeland Security, with the head of, I mean, you were talking about some sort of, and you know what? We, We got there. Like, Everyone was aligned against us. The airports didn't want it to exist. The airlines didn't want it to exist. The government didn't want it to exist. The cities didn't want, I mean, it was amazing how many people didn't want you to create that service because they were all making money off the first class lines and and the way things used to be. Mm -hmm. And they hadn't recognized the way things are now. And that situational awareness is the other thing. So it's this willingness to drive. If you have a vision and you know there's something to it, right? That you really are addressing a core pain point, which he was, and that fast pass really did address a core pain point that was created by the new security process after 9-11. And the, uh, the, the level of situational awareness that it took to understand how to make it happen despite all of the opposition. And you know, we did, which is kind of amazing. We really made it happen. And that was just so inspiring to me. It was so cool. And then the last thing was the other thing it gave me was just the understanding of the importance of team. Like those people are like family. When you are in the kind of, um, I don't know, battlefield mindset that you're in when you're building something from scratch, you know, those, those people are your, you know, brothers and sisters, and you got to feel, you got to feel a lot of trust and that they're in it with you. And they feel the same core motivation that you feel to solve that problem. Uh, Cause it's just, there's going to be a lot of hard times and um, you know, you just, you got to have the right, right group around you for sure. How do you hire for trust? 
well, you know, the way I did it was all family. <laughs> Just hire people you love and know. Because it's a whole other set of complications, right? Then you're dealing with communication as your big hurdle instead of trust. So because it's so different, right? My, I mean, I built this business with my husband and, and neither one of us was taking a back seat. Like we were both super active in it. We just had very different skill sets and we got lucky that way. Mm-hmm. But my head of brand was my brother. My best friend was our head of marketing. The the woman who who really built the entire sales organization, she came to us when she was 20. And I met her at the dog park because our puppies were the same age. And she wanted, she was like, oh, telling me about her job and blah, blah. And I was like, oh, just come work in our garage, which she literally (laughs) did at the age of like, she literally, I think she was 21, putting boxes together. Well, she ended up as the global head of sales, you know, and we're a very, we're significantly sized company now. uh, And Mm -hmm. she's still with us, right? As the head of sales. I mean, amazing. So for me, it was really family because that would, that solved the trust thing. But, but look, there were times where, I probably needed some other people who had expertise, right? We were all so homegrown mm-hmm. that we had to learn lessons that we we might not have if we brought in people that were experts in particular fields, right? Really in any of those fields. Yeah. So what was work. that aha moment when you realized, you know, I want to create this amazing vitamin company. You know, I see this vision. I have to stop at nothing and go for it right now. What was the kind of development of that idea? And when did you decide to go full force? It was probably a year actually after we started the company. So we the original company idea was around a solution that was, it was actually kids' brain health. It wasn't even vitamins. It was kids' brain health. And we were focused kind of across the product spectrum. It's like supplements is one part, games is another, but like what are all the things around kids' brain health, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and this is now 10 years ago, but it was it was a field that hadn't yet gotten a ton of attention and that looked interesting to us. As we started to get into it and we were working on the just the vitamin aspect of it, we launched that in on Amazon in like 2011. And what happened was very quickly after launching this product, and, and when we did it, we were trying to think of all the things that got in the way of you sticking with a vitamin regimen or at that time, your kids, because there were things that were good for them. There were things that were affordable and there were products that tasted good, but those were not the same product, right? Mm-hmm. They were three different solutions. So could we get all that into a single serving, a single solution, right? And so we launched it on Amazon. And what happened was very quickly, maybe six months in, we had so many parents writing us saying, this is amazing, but now I'm stealing my kids' vitamins. Could you make one for me? (laughs) That's when we realized we'd actually backed into a much bigger problem. And one, frankly, that was more where a solution would have had a bigger impact than even the kids' brain health area, because that was more about optimizing versus Mm -hmm. preventative health. And we realized that in supplements, compliance is the biggest problem, i.e. people don't stick with it, right? It doesn't do you any good if it's sitting on a shelf. Vitamin D is really vitamin D, but if you don't take it, it's not gonna do anything for you. And so we realized that we had kind of stumbled into a a better solution that addressed all the things that got in the way of people taking their vitamins consistently and therefore getting the benefit. And that was really the aha moment. So that's like 2012 is really when we said, oh, what we actually are building is a solution for preventative health around creating a vitamin vitamin approach that addresses everything that gets in the way of you taking your vitamins. And part of that is quality. Part of that is feeling good and transparency. Part of it is the... uh, forms of the nutrients you're using. So you're addressing the bioavailability conversation people have, like vitamins don't really work. Part mm-hmm. of it was transparency. So we're going to show you, we're going to lot test every bottle and stamp the bottom so you can see the results, like all the things, right? It's not even just flavor is a thing, price points a thing, like 
there are 10 different things. So can we address all of them at once? And that was kind of the big aha moment. And again, getting the feedback from people. I mean, I, we launched on Amazon, so it was immediate, right? People are posting reviews. We never bought reviews or did any of that. We just, it was all organic customer. We didn't spend, you know, marketing until, I don't know, maybe we were three or three years into the business, four years in. Mm. And just to see and hear people's feedback was just, I mean, it was just so cool and very humbling and very motivating, you know? That's pretty bold, I think, to launch on Amazon. I feel like, especially these days, because if you get some bad reviews, because maybe it's like the first, you know, product that you're launching, um, that can kind of uh, put a dent in things pretty early. So, you know, how did you guys kind of... It's kind of like for all of us, I mean, better get it, better to get that news right away, Hmm. right? And, And I think focus groups and things like that, it's just very hard to actually get at the truth of how people feel about something in any environment other than just an actual retail environment. And that is the magic actually of Amazon is that you do get very sincere feedback. Yeah. Uh, And in fact, you're likely to get more negative feedback because people that like the product typically just go on about their business. Yeah. They don't leave you a nice, right? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. The people, I mean, some people do, we get a lot of amazing ones, but still the majority it's you're upset. Right. And that's why you want to, post something. But even that's a gift because if you engage with those people, other people, we always say our negative reviews are the best advertising we have because people see you engage with that. And we we engage with every single review that gets posted. We're having a conversation with someone. And then everyone else that comes to the page sees that conversation. And not only is the content important, but the takeaway is this brand is engaged. Like they yeah. are paying attention to what people are saying and they they care. We'll get right back to our show, but first, a word from our sponsors. ShipBob is a tech-enabled 3PL that offers simple, fast, and affordable fulfillment. Unlike most 3PLs that lack sophisticated intuitive tools and use outdated methods, ShipBob's technology is modern, intelligent, and designed to give you full transparency over your backend operations. Fulfillment is incredibly time-intensive, so just hand it over to the best of the best. With a network of fulfillment centers across the globe with new locations continuously underway, ShipBob lets you split inventory across locations to reduce shipping costs and transit times. Get your products picked, packed, and shipped, and earn $500 in free shipping credits by going to shipbob.com slash stairway to CEO. That's shipbob.com slash stairway to CEO. Nasto enables e-commerce brands to deliver personalized digital shopping experiences at every touchpoint across every device. Designed for ease of use, Nasto empowers brands to build, launch, and optimize one-to-one omni-channel marketing campaigns and digital experiences without the need for dedicated IT resources or a lengthy implementation process. Leading brands in over 100 countries use Nasto to grow their business and delight their customers. As a Stairway to CEO listener, you can take advantage of an exclusive 10% discount off your first six months. Learn more or request a demo by going to nasto.com slash Stairway to CEO. That's N-O-S-T-O dot com slash Stairway to CEO. So how did you come up with the name Smarty Pants? I love the name. What was the, uh, what was that moment like? Uh, that was not our moment that all credit goes to Breck Costin, who was one of our, we had two co-founders, uh, who weren't really involved in the business after kind of, uh, the very beginning, but, um, Breck, uh, one of our co-founders came up with the name and we were talking about, it was around kids. We were talking about kids brain health and being smart and 
but then kind of being a know-it-all, oh, smarty pants. And I don't know, it just stuck. And I think the more the most interesting moment is when we were getting into the adult vitamin business and we were out raising money, like friends and family, or I don't know mm-hmm. if it was even our Series A or something. And one of these kind of fancy VC people said, well, I'll tell you two things. I'm, I'm very interested in the business, but one, you can't have your friend running marketing, so you would have to fire her. Or no, it was Rebecca. She was too young as the head of sales. They're like, you have to get rid of her because she's too young. <laughs> can't do that job. And two, you certainly cannot launch with the name Smarty Pants for Adults. And I was like, you are the exact reason that we should call that product Smarty Pants for Adults, because <laughs> the kind of people that would love that product are not, you know, like it just, it just shows why like design by committee never works. Right. And like, don't think that the VCs out there have all the answers because they're, they're all, it's so easy to sort of, you know, look back and say, oh, you should do it this way and that way. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah. So it was a good moment. I'm so glad we ignored him and walked away from that investor for for both of those reasons, because they both ended up being amazing. Rebecca was amazing. And I'm so glad we have our name. So (laughs) VC advice, you know, they're not the most creative people, I'd say. I mean, they've got some great experience and value, but um, everyone's different. So what was some of the early metrics? I mean, I know that you said you launched an Amazon, you got these great reviews and that kind of led to like, let's keep doing this. Let's do a, um, you know, adult vitamin. Um, But were there any metrics that you kind of set aside where like, if we hit this number or if we do X, Y, Z, that's how we can measure success and we should really keep going? Or were you just at never point, you were never considering to do something different? I would like to say that we had some set of, you know, KPIs that, (laughs) oh, if we do this and that means it's crushing it. Uh, We did not. That is nothing but a reflection of our total lack of experience in launching a product company, right? Neither Gordon nor I had ever done this before. I had had come from a consumer services business. He was pure tech. So we we used the only thing that we knew would tell us that it was working, which is did the same person buy it twice. So that was the most important metric to us. And that is where having D2C, although we did not rely on D2C to grow our business because it's so expensive to do. And that's what a lot of these brands find. It's very hard to scale it beyond a certain point because it gets very expensive. But as a, as a lab, to see kind of how quickly people repurchase the product and how often and what percentage of your consumers buy it again. That's frankly, outside of your margin, like making sure eventually you're going to make money. uh, That's the metric that matters. It's not about how many quote unquote doors do you get in or how many bottles do you sell? What matters is how many people buy it again. I mean, as long as you're not making something like a car, right? (laughs) So it's like, if you're making a, a consumer packaged goods, it's, does someone buy it twice? And did they buy it? Did they buy it at the pace that you thought they would? Because that's what's going to build your whole business model. And I, I think the reason we had confidence is our repurchase rate was so high. And that was the theory we had. We were like, you know what? Our product, we're going to have a lower margin than our competitors because we're going to invest more in the actual quality of the product. And we're going to be a little more expensive, but we can't be a lot more expensive because the whole point of this is not to not to sell to the 1%. It's so mm-hmm. that we can bring these premium nutrients to everybody. So right. we have to be, we can be a little more expensive, but not a lot. And so that was the question. And so what got us so excited is when we launched on Amazon, the repurchase rate was so high. Uh, that even Amazon, even though we were a baby, baby, baby brand at the time, came back to us and said, hey, you guys are outperforming the category and repurchase rate. We want to bring you in as an actual, like we're going to bring you in as if we're a retailer. So we were selling in vendor central, not seller central. 
So anyway, that was the big moment. That that was when we we realized we were onto something. That solving all these pain points in one serving was getting was getting at something important that was missing in the market. So what were some of the biggest challenges you faced early on, and um, whether it was during product development and formulation, or you know just getting the business off the ground to a certain point? What were in the early days some of the biggest challenges that you faced? I mean, it was all challenges, frankly, just because again we had never done it before. But yeah. I would say. The biggest one really was trying to get the the CMO, the the manufacturing partner, to do anything because we're so tiny, right? And for them, it's do you spend five minutes with some upstart that I've never heard of, or do you spend five minutes with one of my big partners that's driving a bunch of revenue, right? right. I think this is true for anyone trying to start anything. Yeah. It's that getting the getting terms that you can live with with your manufacturing partner. Um, and they, of course, want the cash up front too. So your your trailing revenue because you're growing fast is never going to cover the cost of your future inventory. Yeah, and that is the other thing. Like it is just a cash monster, right? Like the business just ate cash for a living, twenty four seven for the first, honestly, the first ten years of the business because we grew so fast. And again, another thing, maybe if we thought ahead, we would have done it this way. In hindsight, I'm still glad we did it the way we did it. But we only launched one SKU. Like we, which is not something people would tell you to do, right? If you launch, mm -hmm. meaning when you go into Whole Foods or whatever, you want to have five SKUs so you take up a room on the shelf and so people can see you. And yeah, and they do that for a reason because it also helps you cash flow the business because when they place opening orders, they're big enough and you've got enough different SKUs that you're generating, right? A healthy PO. The downside to that though is you don't get to grow organically and find out, you know, you can get up out over your skis, as they say, and you can, you sort of have invested a lot, right? If it doesn't work. Right. So that was sort of, that was an interesting sort of approach for us. We went into Whole Foods with a single skew, which is just insane. And I remember walking to the store the first time and I called Gordon crying. I was like, yeah. we're literally, what were we thinking? Like we're dead. There's <laughs> 700 bottles on the shelf. No one's ever going to see us. Like, you know, just like, had we lost our minds, right? This is never going to work. Um, so that was a pretty big, that was a pretty big obstacle is just knowing that we were going on shelf and we just didn't have a lot of presence and then getting the CMO to work with us in a way that we didn't have to just give away the entire company because we were trying to raise money, right. Mm. To, fund, to fund the inventory. Those were probably the biggest, really the biggest hurdles. It wasn't the product. It wasn't the people loved it. You know, it really was more of the operational side of the business for sure. And in terms of getting into retailers like Whole Foods, um, what was your strategy behind that? When did you guys start talking to retailers? When would you advise other startups to do so? What's kind of, how do you think about retail strategy? For I would say this. So for us, we were we didn't go into retail for the first three and a half, four years of the business. So we didn't even go into retail because we were nervous. I mean, again, we'd never done this before. And I remember I went to like one, there's a guy who does these famous seminars for retail. He still does them actually. That is like, you know, 101, right? Learn how to sell a product in retail if you make uh, a consumer package good. And I went to that seminar and after the first day, again, I called Gordon. I was like, yeah, we're never selling in a store. Like that's insane. Because <laughs> they charge the margins, right? They There's like all these slotting fees and all this other stuff. Yeah. Um, but it is still where most consumers get exposed to your brand because Amazon is amazing. It is a product environment. It is not a brand environment. So what's important is Amazon's a great place, you know, and e-commerce is a great place to drive sales of your products, but it is not a place where you can build brand because it's a very one-to-one -one as opposed to having your product on a shelf that thousands, you know, millions of people see as they walk by. So 
what we did is we went to Whole Foods first, because for us, that was important around the story of our brand, right? That we wanted natural, organic, like we had all those things going for us and we wanted to get credit. So the goal always was to end up in Target and Walmart and, and to sell to those customers. But we knew starting in Whole Foods would give us credibility, right? In mm -hmm. terms of the ingredients. And what I would say to people going into retail, the most important thing is do not try to get into a ton of doors, do a test in a small set of doors so that you can do online marketing for this. You can zip code target those people online, really let them know about your brand before they see you in the store. And you yourself can find out if it works because right. you could also be very sick. There are tons of brands that have been wildly successful on Amazon. They're doing 30, $40 million in sales with a single product on Amazon. And we've watched them go into target and fail because they don't have a brand. So you, so those are two different things. And I would say in retail, it's just good to go slow, do the test. Don't be afraid of the information it shows you, right? And don't try to add a bunch of doors because all that does is make a bad problem worse if, if it's not working for some reason. Versus if you start small and you go to the retail and say, hey, I noticed this isn't working. We're going to do this, this, and this. They really appreciate that, right? Then that builds trust because mm -hmm. they say, oh, this brand is paying attention. I don't have to pay attention because they're paying attention and they, right. they know what my target hurdle rate is for, you know, units per store per week. And they're going to, they're, they're really on it. So I would say it's good to use e-commerce D2C first just to make sure you've got repurchase. Once you know that you have that confidence, then you go to a test in retail that will allow you to really surround them with marketing and, and make sure you're getting repurchase on shelf too. Mm -hmm. And so retailers, I assume if you've launched on e-commerce, they're going to want to know what your kind of retention numbers are to see if that's what you'll be bringing to their store. Is that accurate? Yeah, that's what gets them so excited. If they see you've yeah. got a bunch of reviews, that helps, right? So the bigger your review base is really good. And I think, uh, yeah, being able to say to them, hey, our SNS, which is basically a proxy for retention, right? If you have a high SNS uh, subscribe and save percentage, which, you know, Amazon will share, if you have a high percentage, that tells them, oh, this is a product that has really good retention. Interesting. So they're likely to bring you, they're likely to bring you on. And there are other paths. There are other brands in our category, uh, Ritual, some of those guys who are really good at press. I don't. I do not enjoy doing press. Like I love conversations, right? I like talking to people, but mm -hmm. press and, you know, pitch and doing panels, pitch my business. I, I'm not, I was never a fan of that. And so, and listen, that's not smart. Like it's great. It drives sales to do that. So there's different ways. And all I'm saying is that for retail, that can also work, right? If you've gotten lots of press and they've read about you and they have seen your brand, that can also be a very effective tool. We just, we just did it another way, which for us, it was all about the retention rate. Uh, yeah. and on Amazon. Yeah. And that we, we were the number one products in our category before we went to retail. So they, they pay attention to that, right? They know you, they'll call you, right? They'll say, and we made some mistakes. The drug channel, CF, CVS and Walgreens both called us way before we were ready and said, we want to bring you in. And we were like, wow, CVS. Yeah. nightmare, worst mistake we ever made, right? They've got 8,000 doors, drug moves, very slowly. It's crazy expensive. You have to have tons of brand awareness. We got crushed. We like, I mean, that was the worst, very painful, like year and a half with drug. And we only just relaunched a drug now and now it's doing really well, but it's 10 years later. You know what I mean? Yeah. That's interesting. So what do you mean by totally failed? Like, what, what does that mean? People just weren't buying it from these drug stores? Like what, what kind of happened where you, what do you mean by it was the worst thing? 
So like, they don't even see you, right? You're this baby brand. We, again, we had like one skew. It's like on some bottom shelf somewhere. I mean, they don't even see it, right? <laughs> yeah. And, and in drug, like in a grocery store, most items you'll turn, meaning you'll go through, right? It's like anywhere from three to six items per week, right? That's mm -hmm. kind of like, and different categories are different, but in general, right? They're looking for you to move that many units. In drug, it's like, if you move 0.01 unit, a week. That's amazing. Right. It's like ridiculous because, the, and that's the point they have 8,000 doors, right? What their, their game is a real estate game. It's, it's, you know, they're not expecting high dollar checkouts every time you go. Mm -hmm. It's just that you go all the time, right? It's these right. little stop-ins. So unless you have tons of brand awareness and you've got a lot of facings, it's, it's why you never see innovation in a drugstore. Like there's a reason for that. Right. Interesting. I never thought about it. So it's really, I didn't either until it cost me lots and lots of money. <laughs> oh my gosh. Well, yeah. speaking of money, since, you know, it takes a lot of money to create all this product, to be in all these stores, fundraising, I'm sure was a big part of the job of building the company. How much did you guys end up raising total? And, and what were your, what was your experience in fundraising? We raised a lot. I mean, look over the, over the life of the business, probably $50 million was raised for the company. And we also had uh, debt at the end. Uh, that was a great tool, but you have to be far enough along and, you know, uh, to do that, to use debt. Um, it was way more fundraising. Like I did, that's another thing we just didn't think through, right? It's just constant fundraising. We did it in that way intentionally because we didn't want to give up the company. So we would raise more frequently right? So we were raising small rounds all the time, as opposed to a big round, taking more dilution than we would want. Um, but we also just, again, this was our first time ever doing this. I think mm -hmm. that would be the thing that we would probably structure differently mm -hmm. is, you know, find a way to cash flow the business, um, knowing what we know now differently so that we didn't have to raise as often as we did, but right. you know, whatever hindsight, it's just, it is what it is. And we didn't know how it was going to go. I mean, that's the, that's the other thing too. Like every time it was a new product for us, it wasn't like we had 10 products and then you launch another one. Every product had to be a hero because we had one. Okay. Now we're having two. That's now we've doubled our, you know what I mean? It's just a, so, um, yeah, it's not, it's not cheap. I mean, but you have to understand we're also in, 40,000 doors were sold in Costco, Walmart, Target. I mean, Smart Events is now sold literally, you know, almost everywhere. So yeah. that's why you see that kind of capital. In the first five years, you know, it's $5 million, not. So a lot of that capital is coming in in the last three years of the businesses were really, really scaling. Mm -hmm. Yeah, fundraising can be really tough. Um, and I wonder what it was like, especially at that time when you were fundraising with um, a husband as a co-founder, was that looked upon in a good way or a bad way? Or like, what were kind of the conversations or what did the naysayers say? You know, did you have any kind of tough points when you were fundraising where you're like, Are, is anyone going to give us money for this? <laughs> what? Oh yeah, for sure. You know, the, the reality is that Gordon and I, we had both run businesses before, but we both were in tech. We didn't know anyone in CPG, like nobody, mm -hmm. no investors, nothing. Yeah. And so it was a matter of, first of all, bootstrapping it ourselves for the first, I don't know, 18 months. Right. Mm -hmm. And even after that, I mean, we didn't take salary for the first five years either one of us that we were scaling the business because we just needed it to go into other stuff, which also tells you one of the biggest struggles around entrepreneurship and something I'm very focused on, which is to really start a business. It's very hard to do if you don't have savings. Yeah. 
It is. Oh, yeah. I mean, that's the dirty secret of entrepreneurship. Like I was able to do it because I'd had a business before this business, right? Now we ate through hundred percent of our savings. We, we got to the point where we had to decide if we were going to keep going, even though there was zero safety net left. But still, I, at the beginning, we had a way to use credit cards and use our savings to, to you know, get it off the ground. So it, it, I think in the beginning, that is the, that's the hardest part. We, it was really a network thing. We literally called everyone we'd ever met and said, do you know anyone who knows anything about this, right? Mm-hmm. About, um, and so we, we got very fortunate that through a friend of a friend of a friend, we found someone who understood this business and was willing to take a flyer on the concept. And then as soon as we proved ourselves, he really became our angel. And he really helped us in the first two to three critical years. He was, you know, 90% of our financing, really. Wow. Um, and we, we were very fortunate, right? And, and yeah. then we used Circle Up, which is a great crowdfunding platform for um, CPG brands, which I loved. You know, we had people put, you know, $5,000, you know, investors. Yeah. So our cap table, I had, you know, was hysterical. <laughs> I mean, it's like I, <laughs> I have 75 investors, you know. <laughs> Um, but you know, it's whatever it takes. It's like, it really is whatever it takes. And I think if there's one thing that I would change that I, I hope to help change really is to create funding access for people in those seed really, really early, early money when it's just yes. so hard, unless you already have money to yeah. start something. It is. Yeah, absolutely. Especially now because in seed rounds, the expectation is totally different than it was a few years ago with totally. your traction. So exactly. the metrics you need, you need to be in business for a couple months and have like tens of thousands of dollars in sales, if not more, you know, oh, yeah. to even yeah. attract seed investors. And so, yeah, I, I agree. I was having this conversation actually with a friend the other day about how there really needs to be more pre-seed funds, more angel groups that are actually angels, not seed investor angels, but real That's angels right. <laughs> That's right. that are investing super, super early. Yeah. And that's why I would say to people, the one thing I never knew about this until I started Smarty Pants, which really is family office. So what's interesting about family offices, so family offices, basically people who make money, right? And they create a family office. So it's, it's rich people, yeah. right? They're rich people, but they're rich people who care and yeah. they understand entrepreneurs. And so they are people who do not have the same expectations that other investors do. And, and they, they don't have the same, they're like, Hey, if you keep this business for your family for the next hundred years, we're okay with that. As opposed to investors who are like, I want my money back in five years. Right. Right. They they don't, they're just motivated in a different way. And they're like you said, they're real angels. We're in it with you as you go through the journey. And, and that was the game changer for us. We had somebody who was willing to ride the ride with us so that when things got hard, which is inevitable, they were on the same side. You know, we were never scared to tell him bad news. We were never scared to tell, like, and that is just critical. And I'll say the same actually for our PE partner, same thing. They were so in it with us. And so it's so much less about the money and the valuation, which is what gets all the attention and way more about the kind of investor that you have, because trust me, that, that is what's going to make or break you in those moments where things get really challenging. And we went with a PE firm that was more expensive, frankly, than the other options we had. And it was so worth it. Because when things went wrong, they were exactly who other people in the industry told us they were, which is they were on our side and they were there to make it work. And that was, that ended up being really important. Yeah, that's really awesome. When you were talking about, um, you know, selling in five years or these expectations investors have, when you started your business, were you guys thinking about being acquired at any time? Did you start this business thinking we want to eventually get acquired? So we want to build it a certain way? No. (laughs) 
we, you know, I will say we didn't, we didn't even have an end game, which may be dumb, but also gave us a lot of freedom. Like we just wanted to build something awesome. We really thought initially that it was like a lifestyle. This is, I mean, hysterical to Gordon and I both now we're like, this would be a lifestyle business and we'll have <laughs> great products and we'll just sell a couple of them on Amazon and it'll give us an income while we try to figure out what we want to do now. Yeah. I mean, then it became an obsession and then then you're in the obsession and it doesn't really matter and you aren't really even thinking about the exit. And we weren't. And then the only thing that changed is we did make a decision five years ago to bring in a private equity investor. And what happened was we saw the landscape changing. We knew vitamins were about to become insanely competitive and that everyone and their brother was going to want to invest. And so we needed to hit the gas because it was either at that point, it was either get out or get big pretty quickly so that you can ride the wave. And so we made the decision because we loved the company and we were really excited about what was happening that we would bring on an investor. And we knew that what that probably meant is that we would sell the business five years later or we would buy it. And we did put that as part of our deal. We wanted the first right to buy the company back in five years. Um, and it turned out that, you know, we got, it, it was amazing. We, we ended up selling to Unilever and I, I you know, it is the dream for, for, for us to have been able to sell that company to the home that I know from a, from a climate commitment standpoint, uh, women uh, in the workforce standpoint, in so many areas, uh, they really do walk the walk. And I am just like beside myself that we got to sell to them. Yeah. Really, yeah. And as a purpose-led brand that they, you know, you see what they do with Ben and Jerry's, they let them be Ben and Jerry's still. And so that was, that was pretty important to us. So anyway. Well, huge congratulations um, to getting acquired. That's a huge deal. Mm -hmm. Tell us about, I guess, the process of that whole thing, those conversations. You know, you had spent 10 years building this business. I imagine there's a lot of attachment, you know, to it. You, what were some of your fears, doubts, you know, feelings about getting acquired? Well, I mean, look, it's always stressful. This is, you know, this, I mean, this is the thing about entrepreneurship. It is, it never goes away. Like it doesn't get easier. I, can, I think that was the thing early days too. We were like, oh, we'll get to this place and then it'll be easy or we'll get to, <laughs> it was never easy, like never, but I always loved it. You know what I mean? Like it was always hard. It just got bigger. So you had more people you were responsible for and it was, you know, you just, but your capacity also grows in lockstep with it. You know what I mean? It's like the stress grows and the responsibility grows, but you grow too. Mm -hmm. and so you're kind of expanding right in that yeah. way together. And so the process to sell it honestly felt like a pretty natural evolution. I think it really surprised us both, but it's very similar to having kids in that when they go to, and now our daughter like went to college this fall, it was really interesting timing. <laughs> And not to mention COVID, obviously, but even just, yeah. it's, it, it's very similar to that, which is, of course, you're sad because it's so a part of you and you built, you work so hard and you guys are collaborating, creating, co-creating this life together and doing all of that. But you're also, you love it so much that you want it to have the future it deserves. Hmm. And I'm not the best custodian of that future. I'm not because I know I am a breakdown walls, like never take no for an answer. I am not a run inside a multi-billion dollar national with lots of necessary bureaucracy yeah. you know, to build a global brand. Like that's just not, that's not me, but I love smarty pants and smarty pants is, is a force for good in the world. And I know that, and I know it has a role to play as the purpose-led brand in that category. And so I felt a very deep sense of responsibility to put it in a place that I knew was going to address the areas that had to grow, which is international. Right. Um, and to really 
thought leadership and all those things I cared about. So in the end, it's funny, tomorrow is actually my last day as CEO. Oh my gosh. And so I'm saying goodbye to my team. And it's very funny that we're actually oh having God. this conversation today. Yeah. And, but you know, what I feel mostly is not sadness. It's more, I'm very moved. You know, I, mm -hmm. I start crying every time I think about, you know, I, talking to the team, but not out of, you know, sadness that it's over more just, I'm just so grateful. I'm just yeah. so grateful. And all the entrepreneurs know what this, you know, it's that feeling of like, you just leave it all out there and, and come what may, the magic really is about the process. It's not about the endpoint. And I think we're really lucky that we didn't have some fantasy of an exit mm. because that just creates a different way of making decisions. And there is no magic in making decisions like that. Magic is you're out on the skinny branches. You don't know what's going to happen, but you have an instinct and a vision and a feeling and a drive and a commitment to doing what you're doing, come what may. And that come what may is the part that makes it fun. Mm -hmm. It's not the, oh, and then this is going to happen. That's the, who cares about that? <laughs> By the way, that's never going to be what you think it's going to be anyway. Right. Like whatever that thing is, that's going to be future you that it happens to. And you don't even know who you're going to be by the time it happens. Like none of that stuff. And did, I never thought I'd have the same job for 10 years, much less build a company and sell it to some bit. You know, it just, yeah. I think there's just people can't and it's hard to appreciate it because it's so hard I mean I just all I can say to all of you is I just know how hard it is it's so hard in the best of circumstances it is so hard because you lose your way and there's no one to you are you are it you are the bottom line and so there's no one else to call right I mean yes you, you might have investors or friends or but it can be a very isolating experience you know mm -hmm. and it, it can be scary as hell it can be yeah. so scary and it weighs on you and so but it's also it's really extraordinary to come together with a group of people and attempt something. Yeah. It's just, you know, that, that there is real magic in that. And I, I, that's the fun part. It really is that, that, that is just the watching people attempt to be their best is a real honor. You know, I'm very humbled by it. Yeah. As I start crying on your podcast, unfortunately, <laughs> bring it on for my last day. It's like, <laughs> so it's quite emotionally present for me at the moment. Anyway. I bet. I mean, that's a, you know, you're right in the middle of that transition right now. And I think from like an identity perspective, you know, how do you think about that? Cause I know, you know, my company got acquired, not nearly at the same level as yours, but just changing from running your own company, being the CEO, and then you're working for someone else <laughs> like, or yeah. your, you know, your whole role, everything changes. How did you find it? The transition? Um, well, I kind of realized pretty quick that I'm an entrepreneur and need to start another <laughs> company. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, um, <laughs> isn't that funny? Like you yeah. can just be like, Oh, right. That's why I was not this. Like that's right. why I'm not this person. Yeah. 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 We, we tried, you know, for a year and, um, yeah, so it's, I, yeah, that's what I learned pretty quick was, it was just another reminder of, um, I'm definitely suited to be a founder and I need to start my next thing, but it's just so cool though. Right. Yeah. It's good to find that. Like, it's kind of amazing to find that out too. Cause you kind of don't know, you know, you get to get that clarity and be like, and same thing for me. Like I'm a builder too. And you know, there were other, Oh, do you want to stay and do this? I was like, you know, I just want to build stuff. Like, I just, I want to go build something. That's just what I'm meant to do. And it's right. just, I love it. I, especially the early days when you're in there and you're just, you know what I mean? Like it's mm -hmm. so, so I'm excited. It's, it's, of course it's bittersweet, but the company's not going anywhere. And you know, I'm always here for smarty pants and will always be. And so I I'm excited to watch, 
watch it grow and become what it's meant to be and cheer it on from the sidelines. And I'm excited to take everything that I've learned and be better, like, and to be able to be a better leader and to be, you know, you just get a little more brave every time and get mm-hmm. out on a new branch, you know? Yeah. Um, but I'm not in a rush and, you know, I got to get my sea legs. I'm sure it took you a minute. Like, it, you know, it's, I think a transition period just to let my brain kind of settle down and yes. um, let the ideas come and, and to remember that it was a tiny idea when it started. It wasn't, it didn't come to me as some fully formed, I'm going to build a vitamin company. I mean, who would that occur to? Like, it's a whisper that then becomes the shout that you can't ignore. And so also just remembering that it's not some bolt from the blue, like the secret, like all that silliness. It's 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 little things that start to interest you. And then you just pay attention and oh, now it's still, oh, now it's interesting me more. And oh, now it's more. And you kind of trying to remember that that's how it was at the beginning. Because you can, it can be hard once you are actually at that. Yeah more heady space, you can forget what it was like in the beginning. It was not some perfect little vision, you know? Well, exactly. And you know how hard it is. So you're jaded. Like I feel totally jaded now because <laughs> just like every idea I have, I'm like, you're like, well, oh, do I really so want to do that? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> you're like, how bad do I really think yeah. that? Do I want to commit my life to this right now? Yeah. I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> well, you're about to have another pressure. yourself. You're about to have a life startup in your own house. I know. I know. That's for sure. Um, So starting and growing a business involves a lot of professional and personal growth. You know, you're you're growing as a professional and, and personally as well, just through all the different emotions of growing pains of a business. How have you grown personally as a leader? Probably the most important ones were... I, I mean, also like having kids, that's how you learn about yourself, right? Marriage, kids, and building a business tell you who you are because all of your flaws are reflected back to you, right? Immediately. <laughs> lots and of mirrors. Lots <laughs> of mirrors all over the place. And I think what I learned is like for all of us, my greatest gift is my greatest uh, weakness. And I am hypervigilant as a person. I am able to take in an enormous amount of information from all different areas and kind of, you know, I'm like a hockey goalie, right? That's like, would have been my other job. I'm like, oh, I can do that. However, that can also, and I move real fast. Uh, that's great. How, it, it's great if there's two of you, but it's not great if there are 50 of you and it doesn't leave enough room for magic to come in from the side. You know what I mean? And so I think what was most important to me um, especially over the, the second five years was ease was a really important transformation for me, which is to both use my tool when I know it's going to serve, but to let some ease come into the room, um, and know that it's going to be okay. Like faith that it's going to be okay, because it can be hard, as you know, in those moments where you are the final, you know, there's no one to turn to, um, I think just realizing that if I just take a deep breath, it's going to, it's going to work out just as much as if I'm panicking and try, you know, like quick, everybody panic, you know, it's just like, <laughs> um, which in the early days would have been my response. Right. And it also worked out, but it was a lot hard, you know, t- with a lot more side effects mm-hmm. than if I just, right. Then it just let it go. And so I think ease is one and, um, and all, but also appreciating who I was like, I, you know, I'm a very intense person. And I always had a lot of, I know that's super secret, right? You probably couldn't figure that out. Right. <laughs> I'm the same way. <laughs> so I'm like wondering, I'm like, is she an Aries right now? Like, yeah. <laughs> there's a, too much synergy right now. I so, like that. 
So I'm very intense. And I, I used to have a lot of shame about that. Like I just mm -hmm. would try to be, oh, I'm just not going to be, you know, and, but that's silly too. It's like, just, I, I really, um, it was great advice I actually got from other people. Like you, you are clearly meant to be a leader, just be a leader and don't worry about it and just be who you are. And as long as you're not hurting other people, you can't dim your, it's that dim your light to make other people feel better kind of right. thing. Yeah, but yeah. mixed with ease, right? So it's that combination. It's like, I'm going to fully be who I am, but I also don't have to solve every problem right now. Like, it's okay. It's it's going to, you know, it's it's not going to, you don't have to figure it out in the next 15 seconds. Let's put it that way. Yeah. Um, I think those are the things that I learned. And I learned a lot. I'm definitely way, way better leader now. And I still have a lot to learn, but I'm definitely way better now than I was when I started. No question. How do you think your leadership style has evolved over time? Like, where were you before as a leader? What were the, some of the things that you learned? And then where are you now? I think it's, I have a much clearer sense of where my contribution comes from. I think that's what's the, that really is the, the difference, which is I know when I don't need to be in a room and I know when I need to be in the room. And I'm very clear on my contribution is in the room. So I don't need, I don't care if other people get it or don't get it because I'm, I'm very clear on it. That doesn't mean I'm dismissive, but I am very clear. And this is somewhere where I actually think Ray Diallo is very, it's funny because people think he's a prognosticator, but where he is so talented, I think actually is understanding the dynamics of management and how to lead effectively. He is, he, I think he is someone who has, has pretty good insight in that area. It seems to me. And, um, what's his name? Ray Diallo. He was, he's the most successful hedge fund manager of all oh, time. Right, right, right. He wrote a book, uh, Principles, that, I, uh, that really is around leadership and management that I think is extraordinarily uh, smart. But anyway, yeah, I think I just, I now know what my contribution is, which makes me uh, less intrusive when I don't have a contribution to make, um, but also willing to stand in my conviction when I have a contribution to make. Like I'm confident saying, I totally understand it. I hear your perspective, but we're going to go with mine and, and I feel good about it. Interesting. Yeah, that's a, and that's always a tough thing to say too, right? Because the other Should person might be, depending on their personality, feel like they're not very, they're not heard or they're, you know, there's all these mix of emotions that can affect. That's right. And, and you know what, there's, a, and you also have to be cognizant of the fact that like it or not, it is, it is absolutely 100% true that if you say those things as a woman, you will be perceived differently. Yeah, 100%. That is a social science fact. That is not opinion. That is not mm -hmm. perspective. And I've had a, a great life where I've had lots of really amazing opportunities and jobs and being a woman didn't hold me back. But how people feel about me and the way I am and the way I occur as a very strong person mm -hmm. because I am a woman, 100% different. No right. question in my mind. Yeah. Absolutely crystal clear on that. Totally. So, so you have to be accountable for that because you mm -hmm. can't you just, you have to be accountable for that. And you have to be accountable for generational changes. Cause if you're a leader, you're going to have people of different generations in the room mm -hmm. and some generations take criticism really well. Some generations fall apart and you can't have a culture where you can't give criticism because you're not going to get better. So that's an important thing to understand in your interviewing process. And that's something a lot of people don't check for, but I think really understanding actually people's default operating systems are so critical because that's how you're going to move the ball. Like you, you really, I wonder if I could mix more metaphors in one interview. I think I've covered so many today with you. Um, anyway, but that's, it is important. You know what I mean? Like that, 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 that's a whole other conversation, right? Around all the, whew, 
I mean, leadership so is tricky. It is. I mean, tricky. and as a woman, like you said, it really is um, so like just weird. You know, I think that women are, there's certain things I feel like I've been told that if I was a man would never have been even questioned. Yeah. You know, like taking feedback or, oh, yeah. you know, it's like you get criticism, but it's not constructive at all. So then you challenge it, but then now you're being challenging. <laughs> it's like, but if I was a guy. It's interesting because, you know, we watch so many of the CEOs and, and look, there's a difference between abusive behavior, which should have no place yes. anywhere in any workplace and people being in charge and saying, I'm sorry, but this is how it's going to be. Mm-hmm. And you don't have to work here. This is a choice, but here is what you are tasked with doing. And if you are not able to do it, you you can't be here, right? Mm-hmm. And if you notice, so many of the people that got call, called out were female CEOs. And right. how many how many male CEOs do you know that that are tough or I mean so much heroes, worse? Yeah, <laughs> the heroes of our culture. Yes, Steve Jobs. Like think about the people that are lauded at Larry Ellison. I mean, these people are heroically assholes. I mean, they just are, right? Really, really abusive people. Yes. Forget people giving feedback. And so there is some inherent sexism in the way that female leaders are treated. There's no question. Now, yeah. hopefully that changes over time. And with just, with, with sheer volume of numbers, I do think yeah. it, it is changing. I do, but, but you also have to be aware of it. You just have to be accountable for it for sure. And I think one of the ways it can change, and I don't think we're there yet, is that venture capitalists, you know, these VC investors are going to look past just the metrics that they see of a company that's exploding and actually look at the culture inside mm-hmm. internally on the team and decide whether or not they want to fund it based on that as well. Right that's now, I feel like that's not such a factor for a lot of investors, and that's yeah. obviously not going to change things. Um, yep. But that's at least what one of the things I hope that, um, you know, they start lifting the curtain a little bit more. I think that's really smart, actually. And I think as long as they start to see that that's actually where the alpha comes from, because the alpha comes from the team. It doesn't come from, I mean, ideas are done, doesn't, frankly, it's execution is everything. And so execution is ultimately team. And so I think that's actually, it's a really good point. And I think the smart folks do that. Like, I do think the smart folks, and more and more than like, we had a coach for our entire management team that we all worked with individually and together as a group uh, over the last year. And it was amazing. It was amazing. And I guarantee you when it came time to run a process to sell the business in the middle of all of this insanity, it was because of the team and the way we were able to go through the cultural, like the cultural reckoning and COVID and like all this at once was really because we were able to have very honest conversations about what was working and not working as a team. Uh, but that took outside intervention. That took us investing in a coach and it took our our investment partners being willing to, for us to invest our money that way. Yeah even though we weren't profitable, right? Mm-hmm. To bring in uh, coaching, right? To really mm-hmm. work with not just, I mean, easy for the CEO, for them to do that for CEOs, but to do that for the entire team, you know, it's pretty unusual, but I think they were really happy they did because when things got really tough, people had more tools and we were all better equipped to deal with it. Absolutely. So, you know, with building a business, it just takes so much persistence. Um, and it's hard to keep your head in the game or positive every day. Is there a routine or activity or something that you do that has kept kept you balanced um, and able to feel motivated each day? I mean, I do a lot of things. A lot of people say I do exercise every day and I uh, meditate and I, d- I do all those things. I- I would think, I think it's family, frankly, like just friends and family, being able to laugh and not be that person for a minute, 
you know, yeah. that's what makes the married thing kind of really interesting, you know, because that person that you were also is now with you still at home. And so you, being, you don't get to quote unquote, be a different person or kind of put that down. Yeah. But just laughing around the dinner table about something dumb with the kids, you know what I mean? Looking at ba baby animal videos with my kid, like, you know, that's the kind of stuff we did in the early days when it was like so intense, Yeah. Even, you know, it's stuff like that. I mean, just reminders that you're a human being and that none of it really matters. And we're on a ball hurtling through space. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> it's like, yeah. this can't take yourself too seriously. Anything that gets you out of taking yourself too seriously is an immediate fix mm -hmm. for that feeling of overwhelm. And the only other thing I'll tell you that really helped me, frankly, was that book, The Hard Thing About Hard Things. Yeah. You read that? Yep. I loved that. I was like, if this guy, I, you know, this guy who built these huge businesses and same thing, he's up in the middle of the night, sweating, you know, crying, his business is about to fail. <laughs> and just that reminder that everyone else is, you know, we're all just a mess trying to get through it all. And frankly, we're the lucky ones. Like there's no question in my mind. I've never been, um, you know, had any illusion that I already am so lucky for so many reasons, right? I already am so far ahead of the game. And that that leaves me with an obligation to do more because I was given more. And I have no question about that. So anyway, I think that the remembrance that you, you know, you, that we're lucky and and also that we're on a ball hurtling through space. I find, find that to be a very, I find that to be a very liberating notion. Grounding, very grounding. Very know? grounding, yes. Yeah, it's part of the reason I do this show is because I really want to, you know, humanize entrepreneurship. I think it's so far glamorized in a lot of the press that we read and this company oh. raised this and this company got acquired for X and look how amazing, you know, I mean, you've been on a 10-year journey, you know, yeah. which it, oh I'm God. sure for a lot of people looks like an overnight success. Oh my gosh, they just got acquired and this is yeah, huge. Yeah. Um, but really, it's been so much hard work day after day for oh, yeah. years and messiness and tears and hiding in the closet at the thing and crying. I mean, we yeah. so many, Rebecca and I laugh all the time. We're like, if I had any energy left, I would write a book, but I don't. So it's just <laughs> because there's so many stories, you know, and, and yeah, I think it's so important to not, because it is such an isolating experience that you yeah. don't you really don't want to glamorize it. And, um, and I actually think Shark Tank did serve a purpose. I, there's probably not a Shark Tank episode that's ever aired that I haven't watched. You know, I love, I always love that show because I actually think it does do, it provides a service because it does show that it's hard and it does show failure. And it does show that sometimes it actually doesn't work out. And sometimes you need to read the tea signals and say, guess what? No, the world doesn't actually need that to exist. Right. Right. Or, you know, it's just, so I really like that. I think you're, it's an important thing, you know, that you're having these conversations because it isn't pretty, you know, right. it's yeah. amazing, but it comes at a price. It is a high price. It, it is not, it, it is, it, yeah, it's a lot to carry. And it's yeah. just, you know, definitely a lot to carry every day. And, and by, that's the other thing I'll just say quickly about the raising money thing. I never understood that. There is nothing, now getting money to run your business, that is an amazing thing, but people as if that's something to be proud of. What we should be proud of is you did it without needing to raise money. That to me is amazing. Like, <laughs> where are those press articles? Business. Yeah, you're, you've got to own your business because you didn't have to raise money. The way people brag about I've raised 20 million, like I'm embarrassed that I, ha yeah, like I don't want to tell people how much money I had to raise to get my visit, right? Like I wish it was zero, <laughs> right? So right. 
you can, I think you're exactly right. And some of that is some of the bro culture stuff that's, that's going away. And the only other, other one I'll say quickly is ours. I did a panel with some people that remain nameless, but there are a bunch of brand name CEOs, blah, blah, blah. And they were all guys and me. Mm -hmm. And it was so horrifying. Someone said, what is your work culture like? And this is not that long. This is like two years ago. So this is not like ancient history. And they were all like, oh, you know, I work fucking 18 hours a day. Oh, we sleep at the office. Like, we work so hard. And I'm like, what? I said, you know, if it takes you 18 hours to get it done, you're, I don't think you're doing it right, dude. Like, <laughs> I didn't say that to them. But honestly, why that's something we should brag about. Like, mm -hmm. we have always had, I do not want people working more than an eight-hour day. Because I want them to have lives and be fulfilled people yeah. and have creative minds and go to museums and have time to see the world and like be a fully contributing, breathing human being. And by the way, you, your brain doesn't work like that. You can work 18 hours, but trust me, whatever you're putting out isn't very good after the first eight. That's why it's really taking 18 hours. <laughs> it's not sleeping enough. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So that's the other thing I really, you know, we were pretty committed to that from day one. And sure, there would be stretches for sure, right? Mm -hmm. Where we'd be on some sprint for something. Yeah. But for the most part, we absolutely did not want people working like that. It's just not productive. And I think that's another, that's another one that I think is hopefully faster than slower, but is dying. And as more women that have family, like that starts to go away. Like that's not sustainable and it's not smart and it doesn't serve anybody to have a culture like that. I agree completely. And I'm hoping that COVID, especially with remote working being, you know, everybody's learned and had to be forced to learn how to work remotely, that now that's built in this new flexibility, this new lifestyle for people. And I, I hope that it continues. Um, also with the recognition, and I, I think it also highlighted that that's, a, that that's a gift in and of itself, that for a lot of people, they don't even have that choice, right? Yeah. They don't get to work from home. And so I think it is, a, I think it's a, yeah, I, I, I think we're headed there, but uh, I, I hope it happens, um, you know, sooner than later that we all recognize that everyone is better at what they do if they're given room to be a full human being that can take care of themselves and their families yeah. first, you know. So before we begin to wrap up, um, you mentioned that you, you know, you thought about maybe writing a book, but you, you know, may not have the energy right now. Um, and you mentioned that there could be, you know, there's so many of these stories about those tears that were shed or the tough times, you know, what's one of the moments that sticks out the most for you? If you were to write that story or share that story. There was someone who had come into the business that was just very shiny, I'll say, very famous, wanted to put money in. We weren't even raising money. They wanted to put money in. And my husband said to me, you know, I really, I don't like that guy. Not, not the actual person, but someone working with him. He's like, I don't, I don't have a good feeling. And I was so enamored for my little brand to have been recognized by this other person that I was like, no, 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 no let's just do it. So we did it. And cut to not so much later, and so he was just awful. Something awful happened. And I was sitting in the conference room and it was really one of the first times I thought, oh my God, I've just killed the company. This great company and all these people. And I was thinking about all the employees that trusted in me and all the, and I was just, I was in shock because we hadn't done anything wrong. You know what I mean? Like I was just in shock and gutted and I was distraught and despairing in a way it hadn't been publicly 
like those moments, maybe I was in my house by myself, right? But I was in the office, like when this, and I was just, it happened. And I, I was just in shock. And our partner, our P part called me and out of, she was just calling randomly. We talked all the time. And I just started bawling. I was like, oh my God, da, 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 da. And you know, she said to me, oh, Courtney, you know that there's so much more to smarty pants than whatever that per you thought that per like, this isn't about a per some person that's come in. This is about everything you built and what it's about and what it's for and who you are and why you're doing this. And this, this, this is, this will be nothing in six months. You're not even going to remember this. And at that moment, I realized like being an entrepreneur is hard, but you're never really alone. You know, like, but you got to ask, like ha having those people around you is what matters because if she hadn't been there, I think I would have, I don't know. And it ended up being a non-issue, by the way, this ended up being nothing. Okay. Yeah. But in the moment it felt apocalyptic <laughs> yes. and, and I just was like, I was ready to get in the car and drive. It would just never come back. You know what I mean? I was just like, <laughs> I felt like I was just, I don't know what. So yeah. I just, that moment was, was seminal for me because it taught me a lot of humility about, you know, stop acting like it is just you. Cause by the mm. way, it's not right. Stop acting. Don't be a martyr and you're not in it alone. And, and, and by the way, just remember there's, you know, it's never going to be about one decision or one thing or one. And that's really when the ease probably started was after that most scary moment was probably one of the most important. And I'm actually, I actually never really thought about that, but actually the timing makes perfect sense. So after that is really when this ease thing, I think came into full four for me because I got through it. And then I was like, Oh, she was right. And Oh, okay. And I'm not alone and stop acting like you're alone and stop acting like it's all you. And <laughs> that ended up being a real gift actually. That's really interesting. It definitely helps to talk to other people. I remember something happened with a, you know, an employee, it was just a disaster situation. And I was so right. upset and annoyed that this person could do this, you oh, know? Yeah. And so I just talked to a founder friend and she's like, Oh, that's nothing. Listen to this. <laughs> yeah, yeah, Right. Totally. Especially if you're in California, it's a whole other thing. Yeah. yeah. So that's always, it's like, I felt bad that she had it worse, but it made me feel so much better. You know, like, this is nothing actually. What am I complaining about? Oh boy. Okay. Next. Got to get over yeah, this somehow. Exactly. <laughs> so if you could change anything about your entrepreneurial journey, what would you have done differently? I don't know. I mean, it's all kind of amazing. I don't, I don't really know that I would change anything because look where it ended up. Like I just, I, I think the only thing I probably would have changed would have been to been more present in the early years to just how cool that was, you know, just you're in survival. So I don't, I don't know that it's possible. Right. Yeah. Like everyone's always like, be more present. And you're like, okay, well, that's ridiculous. Obviously I'd like to be more present, but like I can only do what I could do. So I don't know that, that would be a, that would be a wish, but I don't know. I kind of think I'll take all of it again. It's just like kids. It's like the good and the bad and the ugly and all of it together somehow just I don't know. It's just what it needed to be. And I'm just so grateful for it. I'm just, um, yeah, just really grateful. And what advice do you have for founders, you know, maybe thinking of going into business with their spouse, uh, mm -hmm. with work-life balance? Do you have any advice? It, it can be an extraordinary thing because you get to watch the person you love be amazing in a different way than maybe other couples get to, right? Because you get to see that part of them. Yeah. You just have to make sure that you're clear on what your contribution is. 
and what their contribution is. If you're clear on that in the beginning, then you don't indict each other for what you're not good at. Mm -hmm. And you let that person have the stage when they does, you know what I mean? Like you kind of trade off. Um, and we got there, but the first two years were messy and we worked with a coach every single week for the first two years. I mean, it was a hot mess. It was because we're in love and we're like wanting him. I want him to think I'm amazing, but I'm not because he's giving me feedback on something I'm doing, which means I'm not amazing. You know what I mean? It's like, yeah. oh, <laughs> I, so I just think you got to be down to communicate the hell out of stuff. Like you cannot be, you just can't not talk about things because it'll affect your home and it'll affect your business. So you got to yeah. be down with that. But I mean, we'll never not work together. Right. That's awesome. For us, for us, it was, it's been an amazing gift. We, we really, really enjoy it, but we're extremely different. I mean, he is like a mathematical genius um, introvert who would be happy spending time with like one or two people the rest of his life, right? Yes. And I'm creative, product builder, entrepreneur. He is not an entrepreneur. He's like a scientist, you know, that's really what he is, a data scientist. So we're really different. And I think we, we knew that. So that worked for us, but it's amazing. It's just hard. It's just adding another layer of hard, but but also a huge trust, which is very helpful. Yes. I was just talking to an entrepreneur yesterday and she is so talented and it's going very well, but she's all by herself. And man, it's so hard. <laughs> even if it's not a spouse, right? Like I yeah. would not do it on your own. I would have a partner because it is just too hard to be the literally the only person when things go wrong. That mm -hmm. is just I think even though I was the effective CEO. And Gordon was probably the CTO, just having a partner as a co-founder, uh, that, that was pretty important, I think. Absolutely. As a solo founder, I can say to that person, you'll survive. I survived. <laughs> but it's I know. It's so much more impressive. Very though. challenging. I have to tell you, I think what you did is so much harder than what I did because you just, that, that like, it's isolating enough. And I had somebody, you know what I mean? Just to do that all on your own is really inspiring. I, I serious hats off to you, literally. I would take it off, but as we have, because <laughs> you actually are wearing a hat, so hats <laughs> off. <laughs> but it is hard. It is so hard to do that on your own. I have yeah. a lot of respect for that. That's that's a big one. It's hard either way, um, and you know, I think entrepreneurship. It's just like, do you have the choice or not? I mean, for me at that time, I didn't have really a choice. You know, it was either I was going to do the business or it wasn't going to happen because I'd be looking forever for a partner to run it with. Yeah. Um, and so I just had to make that decision pretty early that I just need to do it. You know, I can't yeah. wait around for this partner. And I tried to have a few different, you know, um, potential co-founders and it just didn't work out. <laughs> so create a sounding board. Cause that's what, I mean, that's yeah. true too, right? There'll be people for whom that's just the case. Right. And it's mm -hmm. certainly is for, uh, this one whose business I invested in. How did you, how did you address that part of it for yourself? Did you have like a panel of friends or advisors or people that you would turn to? Yeah, I learned that I kind of needed to create a little tribe, like a boat of people. Yeah. So I'd have like one person who's really helpful on, you know, technical hiring. If I needed to hire uh, someone in the tech world, I didn't know what the hell they were saying when they were talking about the different code languages um, right. or, uh, you know, to help vet for that. Um, so I just tried to choose all the places where I needed help, where there was like emotional stability from my uncle who you know, right. like could be like, I could call it from the bathroom, you know, at a meeting with investors and be like, this is what they just said to me. What the hell do I say now? You know, <laughs> so good. Hold, please. Yeah, exactly. 
<laughs> totally. He's like, just calm down. Wait a minute. They'll eventually That's get to this awesome. topic. It's fine. I'm like, yeah. you better be right. I'm about to leave right now. <laughs> I'm about to walk out the door. These guys are crazy. Um, yeah. So I just realized I needed to fill a bunch of holes with people that had things that I could, you know, leverage for stability from emotional to tactical to fundraising to, you know, all these different things. So some were investors, some were advisors, some were family members, but yeah, I just have to fill the boat up for support. That's a good, that's a, that's a good metaphor that way better than all those other metaphors I use. Um, so what is next? You, you know, until you'll probably be on the board for a while. Um, but what is next for you as you step down from CEO? Well, I will, like I said, I mean, I'm sure there's going to be another thing in my future. I am, you know, uh, helping some other entrepreneurs with some stuff that I had gotten involved in. I'd say I'm pretty, I'm pretty heavy on the climate front because that's a pretty near term situation to put it lightly. And uh, thinking about the ball hurtling through space, that's a pretty apex issue as they come. So I did get involved I'm on the board of directors of an organization called Sea Legacy Only One, which was started by a couple of the big nature photographers, um, uh, Paul Nicklin and Christina Mittemeyer, who are pretty well known as the, they were like the head National Geographic photographers who started this organization to really build a platform of people that they could direct to any issue to create action, which they've done, which is really extraordinary. So I'm pretty focused on helping them grow as quickly as they can. Um, as she says, the next 10 years are more important than the next 10,000. So uh, yeah. when it comes to climate, so uh, I think a lot of my effort is there. And in the meantime, you know, I just keep talking to people and helping where I can. And I've got a group, a little stable of entrepreneurs that I'm involved with, that I'm helping with their stuff. And it's all kind of around this thesis of stuff that I think hopefully can help make things better. You know, that's kind of my only investing lens is how can I make things better than I found them and do my yeah. little part. And, but who knows, you know, I, you know, like the same with Swarney Pants. I don't, I don't know where I'm going to be in five years and how awesome is that? Yeah. You know? It's a new chapter for you. It's really exciting. It is. It is. And it's so cool. I'm, I really appreciate that we got to uh, serendipitously have this conversation the day before I stepped down. It's kind of cool, actually. It's perfect and timing. I love it. It's amazing. And yeah, so thank you for the opportunity. It's been really great talking to you. I really enjoyed it. I hope we talk again soon for sure. Awesome. Me too. Do you have any uh, final advice you'd like to share? You've already shared so many amazing things, lots of insights for, you know, the aspiring entrepreneurs or business operators tuning in. Is there anything else? Just take care of yourself and, you know, be kind as much as you can out there. It's, it's tough for everybody. You know, we're all just trying to get through. <laughs> awesome. Thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. You too. It's so great to spend time with you for real. Thank you so much for listening to the Stairway to CEO podcast. Once again, I'm your host, Lee Green. And if you have any burning business questions, please feel free to reach us at www.stairwaytoceo.com. We'd love to hear from you. And if you like what you hear, be sure to subscribe to the show, tell your friends, leave us a review, and follow us on Instagram at Stairway to CEO. Until next time, guys, keep on climbing.